Well, good to be back with you after uh, a few weeks of not preaching. I was working, believe it or not. Uh, there are other things to do around here besides preparing sermons. I uh, just had a few weeks off of not preaching, but uh, it's always a, a time when I'm able to do that to confirm what I love doing and to confirm this thing that um, God uh, lets me do and the, the church here lets me do. So thank you for your week in and week out attentiveness. It's always encouraging, too, to have other guests in and to hear from them about you, to hear them say, man, they listen good. It seemed like everyone was really engaged and, and serious about the word. And, um, and I think, yeah, that's right, they are. Uh, I'm used to it, and um, so I thank you for that. I, I like hearing good reports from my brothers who fill in for us here. We'll start Colossians, Lord willing, in mid-September. We've got uh, some things to do in the meantime. In a couple of weeks, we'll start uh, Missions Emphasis Week. We'll have two Sundays. It's a week, but it's surrounded by two Sundays. We do two Sundays of Missions Emphasis Week later this month. And I want to do kind of a mini-series in the meantime, something I'm calling Encounters with Jesus. The purpose of this is to see examples of how Jesus witnesses, how Jesus tells the gospel, how Jesus proclaims himself and his grace to others. And of course, as we look at that, we'll see what we're supposed to do. We'll see how we should follow the example of Jesus. Not in every way. Sometimes he knows people's thoughts. He can say, I know what you're thinking. And then he digs deeper there. And we don't know what people are thinking, but there are many ways in which we can see his humility and his boldness and his gospel clarity. And um, we can take that to heart. I want to do that today from John chapter 3. If you have a Bible, John chapter 3 where we see the example of Jesus encountering a a Pharisee named Nicodemus. We'll start reading in verse 1. We'll read the first half of this chapter. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Well, especially at the beginning, the first eight verses repeat this theme of being born again, or it could be translated born from above. It's not quite clear from the Greek whether it should be born again or born from above, but but clearly we get the concept. There's a a second birth. It's a, a, a second birth that is a heavenly birth, a spiritual birth. Now, I want to start out by talking about what it doesn't mean and what it seems to mean in our culture. So first, and get ready for a made-up word, the vanillification of being born again. The vanillification of being born again. That's how I would describe what what we see around us today in the culture about born-again language. You see, the word doesn't mean much of anything today. It's just vanilla. It's overused in the pop culture uh, proof of that is the way you, pe- you see people use it, the media uses it, to describe movements that can be said to be born again. Or companies can reinvent themselves and be born again. Or politicians can change their views or move across the aisle and then the newspaper will describe it as being born again. They are now born again. Well, people also claim it for themselves in a religious way. And it seems like the more the people claim it, the less it means anything to the world. It would make for a good trivial pursuit question. What do the following people have in common? Bob Dylan, Jimmy Carter, Jane Fonda, Britney Spears, Daryl Strawberry, Tom Hanks, Mr. T, George W. Bush, Carl Lewis, MC Hammer, Dog the Bounty Hunter, and just about everybody in country music and NASCAR. The only thing those people have in common is that at one time in their life, they have claimed to have been born again. 44% of Americans claim to be born again. That means half the grocery store almost. That's amazing to me. That many people claim to be born again? And yet, 36% of those who claim to be born again admit to be nominal Christians. That can't be right. The divorce rate is just as high among born-again Christians as any other demographic. I could go through statistic after statistic that would show you that born-again in our culture means squat. They don't give more than other people do. They're not less racist than other people are. So what does it mean in our culture even? When people say that they're born-again, a few things come to mind for me, at least as it's used culturally. Maybe that means it's someone who had some experience. They're experiential people, so they relate to God in some sort of experience, big moment kind of thing. For some, that big moment thing was a real turn because they have a past. They have a history. They have a bad past. Perhaps they were in jail for a while. And so now they have this turn, this new life. They have a second chance. They had a coming to Jesus experience. They've been born again. 
Or for some, it's just a way of describing being an unusually serious kind of Christian. There are Christians, and then the ones who really mean it are born-again Christians. A recent poll found that only 37% of Christians call themselves born-again Christians. So 70-some percent of America says they're Christian. But only 37% of those who call themselves Christians would also say that they're born-again Christians. Apparently the rest haven't read John 3. That's pretty necessary for being a Christian, for going to heaven, is to be a born-again Christian, whatever it means. It tells us that there's a large percentage of those who claim to be Christians and they don't want to culturally identify with a lot of people who say that they're born-again Christians because it has ties to political views or, or this nut job over here or that view over there. So one of the things we have to do this morning is come to John 3 and as best as we can clean the slate off of what is cultural in our mind about being born again. Let Jesus speak to us about what it means to be born again. And especially if you're not a Christian and you've had some bad experiences with those who claim to be born again Christians. If that's been your experience, can you just put that off the side for a little bit and let Jesus talk about what it means to be born again. That's the first thing, the vanillification of being born again. Now, in the text itself, the second thing is this, the need to be born again. Verse 3, Jesus says, you must be born again. And again, for the first eight verses, this is basically the only thing that Jesus says. I didn't count the number of times that the word born is used in the first eight verses, but I know it's a lot. It keeps getting said by Nicodemus and by Jesus. That's clearly what he's stressing. And notice that Jesus went out of his way to talk about this. Nicodemus just walked up to Jesus and said, We hear you're a good teacher. And you do some great things, and these great things must be from God. They must be real. That's enough for Jesus to say, you must be born again. And then to keep harping on this thing of being born again, born again. Now, who's he saying that to? He's saying to Nicodemus. Nicodemus here is described as a ruler, which means that he's a part of the Sanhedrin. There's 72 in the Sanhedrin, and only 72. This is their Congress and Senate and Supreme Court and President all put together in one group. There's 72 who lead the Jewish people. Nicodemus is one of them. He's also a Pharisee, which we tend to think is a bad thing, right? And a lot of times it is. We just finished our study of Luke, and so often Pharisee is, that's the P word in Luke. It's, it's bad. Pharisees are bad. They're, they're constantly antagonizing Jesus, interrogating Jesus, and trying to put him in some kind of trap. But Nicodemus, not so much. I mean, he comes to Jesus humbly and honestly. He calls him rabbi, even though Jesus, well, he, he's a homeless carpenter who hasn't gone up through the ranks and become some sort of official rabbi. He hasn't been ordained, to use our language today. No, he's a Pharisee, which we should probably take to mean that Nicodemus is a religious leader who's extremely devout. Not necessarily that he's a jerk. And he's Israel's teacher, 
Jesus said. Verse 10, look at that. It says he's the teacher of Israel, not a teacher of Israel, the teacher, which isn't an official name. It's not an official category, but clearly Jesus is saying you're unofficially known for being the guy. You know, maybe you view evangelicalism in America as having a spokesman. Uh, maybe it's John Piper or Tim Keller or D.A. Carson or John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul. You know, whoever you'd say is maybe like the grandfather of, of the books we read and the things we like around here. Okay, well, Nicodemus is known as the teacher of Israel. And he's probably a respectable scholar of his day by anyone's reckoning. He has a Greek name. That wasn't a very common thing for Jewish religious leaders to do, to take a Greek name. What it may mean is that Nicodemus doesn't want to be insulary, you know, in a Jewish bubble, but instead wants to engage Greek philosophical thought. So this guy is pretty humble, pretty open. He's a guy with a lot of political clout. He's a guy with... Well, extreme devotion to his faith, known for being a teacher in his country, not just his community. He's open-minded in a sense. It's not someone who seems overly experiential and mystical, and that's why Jesus says, hey, you should be born again. You should have this experience. He's not that kind of flighty sort of guy. He's not new age. He's not a mystic. Nicodemus is not someone with a horrible past that needs a quick right turn now. He's been pretty good. He's been faithful. He's been religious and devout. He's been conservative. He's not someone who's, who hasn't yet gotten serious about his religion. Like he just needs more commitment, needs to make it more central in his life. It's hard to imagine a more well-rounded, more committed, more, in a sense, in this context, more normal guy. And Jesus says he needs to be born again. Does that immediately remove the cultural categories for us? Jesus is saying you must be born again to a guy who doesn't fit any of the stereotypes in our day of what a born again person is and what it means to be born again. In fact, I think it's interesting. There's a contrast there where Nicodemus comes to Jesus and said, Hey, good teacher, rabbi, you're a good teacher. And Jesus immediately turns it on its ear and says, you must be born again. Implication, Nicodemus, you don't need a teacher. You don't need more laws. You don't need more insight. Nicodemus, you don't need new rules. You need a brand new life. You need a resurrection. You don't need information. You don't need a little bit of help. You need to die to yourself and your ways. It's that bad, Nicodemus. You don't need a tune-up. You don't need empowering. You don't need a how-to guide. You need a new life. I remember when I was a kid, get a life was a really big put-down. Get a life. And that your life stinks. Your life is bad. You're lame. Well, Jesus means that to Nicodemus infinitely more so and spiritually so. 
You don't need some tweaking. You aren't yet in the kingdom. You haven't yet inched your way toward the kingdom despite all this stuff, despite all this normalcy, despite all these accomplishments, despite all this information, despite your extreme devotion. Who must be born again? We all must be born again. If Nicodemus must be born again, I must be born again. You must be born again. There's no one who is too good to need to be born again. There's no one who's too rich to need to be born again. There's no one who's too normal to need to be born again. And if we're not born again, verse 3 says, we will not see the kingdom of heaven had to be shocking to Nicodemus. Jesus is constantly shocking, especially religious people. This should shock us. There's a need to be born again. Third, let's talk about the cause of being born again. The cause of being born again simply is God. Plain and simple. God is the cause of the new birth. It's not something we can affect. It's not something even we do. It's passive tense here. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Not something you do. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, you must birth yourself again. That wouldn't make sense for Nicodemus for a spiritual birth, just like it didn't make sense for Nicodemus in his physical birth. No one says to a baby, you must birth yourself. When you came out, your part was crying and wiggling. That's it. It's like the wind blowing. Verse 8, Jesus says, the wind is like this. You don't see where it's going. I know they show that on the news, right? They show this, these blue fronts and these red fronts. And I still don't know what the red round thing is and the blue triangle is, but they show it to us. And so we, we should be able to guess where wind is going. We don't really even know then with all that technology. And, and how much more so in first century times would they not have understood where wind is going? That's Jesus' point. You don't understand where wind's going. You just see wind shaking trees, blowing leaves moving grass or sand. That's what God's new birth is like. He does it. You can't predict it. It must be him who does it. It's like Luke 18. Remember we saw that a few weeks ago. I guess maybe it's a couple months now, but Luke 18 was the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and Jesus says it's so hard for rich people to get saved. It's so hard for a rich man to see his need for a savior. This guy can't get out of his self-righteousness. All he views Jesus as as a means of getting more law, more to-dos. He's looking for the advanced course of Ten Commandment obedience. Jesus says, sell all you have and give it to the poor. Then follow me. The man won't do that. Jesus says a guy like that getting saved is like a camel... Full-size camel getting shoved through the eye of a needle. In other words, it's impossible. And the disciples get that because they say, who then can be saved? We may not be as rich as this guy, so maybe we're a smaller camel, but we're still a camel and it's still an eye of a needle. How will we be saved? That's when Jesus says, with man it's impossible, 
but with God, all things are possible. Remember we said, it's not just saying there that it's impossible for you to save yourself. What it's saying is that it's impossible for us to see our need for a savior, to see our need for grace. It's impossible in our own strength and our own ability to get ourselves outside of our own self-righteousness to find our helplessness. But with God, it's possible. That, that switch where it goes from impossible to possible, in John 3, that's called a new birth. In John 3, that's called being born again. Now, let's think through this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus a little bit more. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, obviously he doesn't get what Jesus is saying. But I thought for years, up until maybe this week, that Nicodemus was pretty dumb here. I thought he was really slow. I thought he was just committed to thinking physically and physically only. I don't think so now. I mean, for one, we've already seen this is a smart guy, right? Jesus points that out. You're Israel's teacher, dude. Come on. Surely you can do better than that. I think what, what Nicodemus is saying here is something like, how do I go back and start over when I'm old? You're talking about a new birth. You're obviously talking about a new life. Okay, I'm 40 or I'm 50. I can say it's a new beginning, but I still have 40 or 50 years, however old he was, back behind me. It doesn't cancel it out because I say it's a new life. He's not really saying, how do I climb back inside my mom and go through the birth thing again? He's not really trying to figure out whether that's possible or whether Jesus wants that, even though he's saying that. What he's saying is, how do I start over? I can't. I can't start over. I I don't get a second chance, do I? I don't get a second life, do I? Because I'm saying it's new now doesn't really make the old go away, does it? And, And that's something Jesus is actually getting at. The new birth is not a second chance. The new birth that Jesus is talking about here is not a do-over. It's not just a part two. That's why Jesus says in the very next verse, verse five, that we must be born of water and the spirit. You see that? Born of water and the spirit. What does that mean? Well, one interpretation is that Jesus is talking about physical birth, water, you came out in water, you were born of water, and spiritual birth. So we all have the physical birth, born of water, but not all of us have the spiritual birth, born of the Spirit. I think a better interpretation, though, is to see that Jesus is hinting at an Old Testament theme. Remember Jesus says that Nicodemus should know better than this. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Now, in a sense, Nicodemus shouldn't have understood these things. This concept of the new birth, that language, born again or born from above, isn't in the Old Testament. It's new. 
No one seems to have said it in history until Jesus comes along and says, born again, born from above, new birth. In that sense, Nicodemus shouldn't have understood what Jesus was saying. In another sense, though, that concept is there in the Old Testament, and it's there when you put water and spirit together, like Ezekiel 36. Listen to this. In verse 25, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Water. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Uncleannesses. I didn't expect it to say that. (laughs) New translation, I guess. From all your idols, I will cleanse you, it says. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart. That's new life. A new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone, death, from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh, one that's alive, one that beats. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's being born of water and the spirit. Water which cleanses, the spirit which empowers. We need both. Remember, I was getting at this point of Nicodemus saying, I can't really start over, can I? I can't really say that this is a new beginning, can I? Well, Jesus cleanses and then calls it new life. He cleanses and gives us the Spirit. We need both. We can't just have a new beginning. We need cleansing. We can't just have cleansing and say that that's it. Well, he he forgives me. His program for salvation is cleansing and a new heart a new desire within us. Let me mention a couple descriptions of the new birth elsewhere in the New Testament. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 really describe this whole thing. We won't look at all those verses, but let me just point out a couple verses there in the middle. Verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians 2, Paul describes this. He says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Made you alive. That's regeneration, we call it theologically. The new birth, being born again. In 2 Corinthians 4, he describes it like this. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's covered, we're blind to it, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. They're kept from all that glorious stuff. The light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who's the image of God. But then get this, verse 6, for God, who said in creation, light shall shine out of darkness. That same God has shown in our hearts, our dark hearts, to give, notice all the prepositions, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What it means is that our hearts, if we can mix metaphors here and talk about hearts with eyes, our hearts are dark and they don't see. And the gospel comes to us and we apart from the grace of God, wouldn't see Christ in our hearts. 
but he shines light in our hearts so that we see the grace of God shining on the face of Christ. As Christ is displayed to us by his grace because of the new birth, we see Christ for savingly glorious and mighty and beautiful and worthy of our affection and fully able to save us. We put our hope in him. We put our hope in him because he did something. Do you see it? It's here in the text. You may not like it. You might have extra questions about what that means. Like, well, what does that mean about my mom? What does that mean about my son who doesn't yet believe? But look at the text. Just look at the text for now and see. Dark hearts have to have spiritual light shown into them for them to see the grace of God in the face of Christ. Otherwise, they see the face of Christ and they say, it's a fool. He's not really a savior. He's a charlatan. He's just a myth. And can it be, the old hymn describes this. Charles Wesley, one of the verses says, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye, your eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Friend, if he hadn't shown light into our dark hearts, we would not see the grace of God in the face of Christ. The grace of God starts with this. We are that helpless. You must be born from above or you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now think about another angle to this picture that Jesus is giving us about the new birth. A lot of times he gives us a word picture and he means for there to be several facets for us to look at in this one word picture. So if you're a mom or you're a dad who has watched a birth happen, when you hear the word birth, probably certain things come to mind. Yelling. Pain. Blood. Labor, pushing, graphic words. And in first century times, another word would have come to mind. Death. It was no unlikely thing, no rare thing for a mom to die in giving birth to a child. And in the spiritual birth, it did take someone dying. Birth, you were born. Born from above, labor, pain, blood, death. We were born not just into a, an experience, not just awakening to a new realm. Those things are true in a sense. The new birth came to us at great cost. It came through someone's suffering, someone's labor, someone's death. And that's not a stretch because look at John 16. Go a few chapters later. John 16 where we see Jesus make this connection. John 16, verse 20, he's talking about his death already. In verse 20 he says, 
I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice about his death. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Jesus says, this is like the pain of giving birth. He gives birth to us and we're born into his kingdom. That's the cause of the new birth, God. Now, fourthly, let's talk about the basis for the new birth. The basis. I'm not sure that's the right word. Basis for the new birth? I don't know what else to call it. What I mean is what God awakens us to. What we're awakened unto. Because we're not just awakened. It's not just that a light goes on. It's not just information. It's not just we cleared some things up. Or, ooh, it's a new beginning. Some of that's true, and yet there's more to it. So let me back up to what we were just talking about. That you can't do anything to birth yourself. You can't do anything to make the new birth happen, right? It's not your birth. That doesn't mean, though, that people should sit around and wait until the new birth happens. You, you shouldn't hear... You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you be born again and sit there and say, okay, well, I'll wait to get zapped. I mean, for one, if you're not a Christian, you don't think you've been born again, one thing to do is to pray. Pray. Pray that you would see. You say, well, I don't even know if I want to pray. Pray anyway. The reason you don't want to pray is God hasn't yet given you the desires to want Jesus. Of course you don't. Pray, Lord, Show me this. Show me Jesus. Show me who Jesus really is and look into his word. The new birth happens with the gospel. The new birth doesn't happen and then a year later or two years later someone comes to believe. No one walks around as new life and hasn't yet believed. It's almost instantaneous. The belief has to spring from the new life. Yes, yeah, so Logically, it comes first, this new life. But instantaneously, we have a new heart, and what does that new heart do? It latches on to Christ. It, teeth were made for chomping, right? You want to bite on the right thing. And Christ is that right thing. When we see that Christ is the right thing, faith bites down. 1 Peter 1, verse 23 it says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. In other words, the light that shines into our hearts is light which shines on words. The gospel, the word of God. It's got to get word in the heart before God shines light in the heart. So you don't believe in Jesus, you wonder whether he's real, you wonder whether he's a savior and he's true and he's living today, look at the pages of scripture, read these gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Keep looking, keep praying. And I believe in God's grace, he often will awaken us into the reality of Jesus' saving nature. That's what John 3 goes on to talk about, by the way. We won't look at it as carefully, but those verses, verse 13, on down to where we stopped reading verse 21, 
There it's showing us in the new birth, God awakens us unto certain things. The first thing is that Jesus is the Son of Man. Look at verse 13. John 3, verse 13, it says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's a reference to Daniel 7. Back in Daniel 7, we have this promise that there's coming this time when the Son of Man will come and he will rule the nations. He will be God on earth. So when Jesus comes and says, I'm the Son of Man, that's a pretty big deal. That's up there with, I'm the Messiah. That's up there with putting yourself on par with God. So he says to Nicodemus, I'm not just a rabbi. I'm not just a good teacher. I am not just a miracle worker. Get this. The new birth is an awakening under this reality. I'm the son of man. I'm God's promise. I'm God on earth. And then he says, even more shocking probably to Nicodemus, this son of man has to die. That's what he means in verse 14 when he talks about Moses and the serpent being lifted up. So the son of man must be lifted up. That's a reference to the cross. They would nail a prisoner to the cross, laying down, and they would lift up the cross. It would be a spectacle. So like Moses held up the snake on on a staff for people to see and believe and be healed in the wilderness, so Christ is that thing lifted up by God. Did you see it and believe and be healed or not? But he has to die. He has to die. That's the plan. And that death in our place is received by faith. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. The plan is this. God loved the world and he loved the world so that he gave his son gave his son to the cross gave there isn't a gift wrapped in a package gave him to the cross gave him as our substitute sacrifice the punishment for our condemnation he gave his son on our behalf that whoever believes wouldn't perish, wouldn't die, wouldn't be condemned, but would have eternal life. There's a reason people write John 3.16 on signs at pro sports games. You might think it's overdone. You might think it's a good joke for South Park or Family Guy or some of these kind of cartoons, but Martin Luther called John 3.16 the Bible within the Bible. It's a little Bible. It's the story of God's plan right there in one verse. There's a reason Christians think it's precious. It tells us that Jesus was sent from God, was sent in love, sent to die, to die in our place. And our only hope would be that we believe that and receive it. And if we receive it, we won't perish, we won't die, we won't be condemned to eternal separation from God, but we will have eternal life with him. I love that. I wish we could go on and talk about Nicodemus some more. Nicodemus pops up two more times in this book. In chapter 7, we will look at it, but I'll just mention it. 
There's an example there where the Pharisees are questioning whether Jesus is for real or not. And and they say, none of us have believed him, have we? And Nicodemus says, well, doesn't our law say that we should just at least hear him out? It's not quite clear yet what camp he's in. Maybe he's got a leg in each camp. Maybe the new birth hasn't happened yet by chapter 7, but he's still open to Jesus. But by chapter 19, Jesus is dead. It's time for the burial. Joseph of Arimathea is the guy who gave up his cave, his burial ground for Jesus. You know that story, right? What you may not remember is that Nicodemus is also mentioned. He's there coming, bringing spices for the body. He's caring for Jesus' body. He seems to be a believer. seems the new birth has happened. We don't know when it happened. We just see the effects of it. And if you see those effects in your life, praise God. You may not be able to pinpoint the day that the spirit blew into your heart or when the light turned on in your soul. But you can say now, I do believe he is my savior. Can you just stop right now and thank him afresh that he came to you in your helplessness? You could not birth yourself. You could not affect this change. You could not awaken yourself to see the glory of the gospel that shines in the face of Christ. In your own strength, you would only see Christ as a joke, as not a savior, not Lord, not king, not God, not beautiful, but in God's grace, he opens dark eyes so that we see the light Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. And now that we see that, things are different. We're of the light, according to Ephesians 5. You used to be in darkness, but now you're in light. So walk as children of light. Doesn't this mean, too, thankfulness, yes, for his grace, but now responsibility to walk like him, to follow him, to to act like one who has a new life, to act like one who's been resurrected from the dead. This life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. I love how John Piper summarizes the new birth. One of his newest books called Finally Alive, which is a great summary of what we're talking about this morning. Piper says, what happens in the new birth is not getting new religion, but getting new life. What happens in the new birth is not merely affirming the supernatural in Jesus, but experiencing the supernatural in yourself. What happens in the new birth is not the improvement of your old human nature, but the creation of a new human nature. A nature that is really you and is forgiven and cleansed, and a nature that is really new and is being formed by the indwelling spirit of God. Praise God for this specific gift of his grace, the new birth. Now, one more question before we're done. How do we communicate these things today? The fifth point, how do we communicate these things today? Remember, that's what the series is about. Engaging like Jesus engaged. If we're going to engage like Jesus engaged, you may choose not to say that you're born again. You may not go out of your way to wear the badge of being born again or to tell people that they must be born again. 
Why? Because when Jesus said it to Nicodemus, it was new. And when Jesus said it to Nicodemus, it was shocking. It was otherworldly. It was weird. It, it was ununderstandable. And when we say it today, people think they got us pegged. You mean you're Republican. <laughs> oh, born again, you're a nut job. Oh, born again. So tell me, what years were you in prison? Right? For all those reasons, we may choose to find a different shocking way to describe what has to happen to our neighbors that we love and our friends that we love and our family members that we love and our kids that we love. I, I think we're used to a certain glossary of words as the church. And we have the definitions and we use these words out in the world and they have a different set of definitions. We don't realize that we're getting in the way here. We say things like, you have to invite Jesus into your heart. And then people go, okay, is he that small? I mean, they don't know, right? They, they haven't heard of this stuff. Invite Jesus into my heart. All right, that sounds pretty cool. I got room in there. And there's no mention of why he had to die and how helpless we are. I mean, that sounds like good people should invite Jesus into their heart too. If you have a good life, Jesus in your heart will make it a better life. That's what it sounds like. But we don't mean that, do we? We mean if he isn't your Lord and Savior, if he isn't your hope, if, if you don't have your eternal soul resting on him and him alone, you will perish in hell forever and ever. We believe hell's a long time and it's really hot. It's bad. Figure out a way to say these things to your friends in your own language, perhaps, in a way that's shocking and real and gets to the heart of what this stuff really means. And maybe you'll choose to use phrases like born again, but then you'll say, yeah, in the culture that means this, but that is stealing, hijacking what Jesus said and running off in the wrong direction. Here's what Jesus meant by it. Define it. Make clear what we believe. We want clarity, and we want it to be appropriately shocking. This is a shocking message. I think we have the vanillification of our message. It's palatable. And so people are either indifferent to it. Oh, okay, you believe that? Fine. Or they'll take it. And sometimes they'll take it when regeneration hasn't happened. We need to look for opportunities. Look for those ways to make an inroad to the gospel. You know, mentioning that you're blessed as opposed to lucky. That might be the first inch down the road that leads to the gospel. Well, that isn't the gospel. You didn't witness by saying you're blessed rather than you're lucky. That's just an inch. Let's get to the gospel. Let's make inroads like Jesus does. Even sometimes when it seems a little obtuse. I know we can be a little too obtuse sometimes, some of us especially, but, but look at Jesus as an example. Sometimes he takes one example, one little inroad, and he makes a sharp right turn to the gospel. I need to do better about that. Witnessing is actually witnessing 
with the information one would need to believe in order to be saved. He said, I don't know what to tell them. Well, apparently you had enough information to believe yourself. Whatever you came to believe when you got saved, tell them that. Apparently it was enough if you're really saved. Some of you need to wonder, though, whether the Spirit has truly blown in your heart, whether light has really shown, whether instead you've maybe just been religious like Nicodemus and it hasn't been the real thing and Jesus is saying to you again and afresh, you must be born again. And if you have... Don't stop thanking him. Don't stop praising him. Don't get used to it that you would be helpless, bound in sin and blind to his righteousness without his, without his new birth grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We marvel at your grace. We pray that your grace would move in our hearts so that we see you more gloriously and more graciously than we have before. We pray that it would empower us, that Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf and the freedom we have in him would make us bold, not dumb, not weird, but lovingly and humbly bold. Lord, we thank you for the new birth. Thank you for new eyes. Thank you for what followed that in faith and repentance and adoption and reconciliation and redemption. Lord, now we see a little more clearly what Paul meant that in him we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Lord, help us to not miss these blessings that build one upon another for our salvation. To you alone be the glory. Amen.